Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel, Lehigh Valley. And good morning to all of our Facebook friends on Facebook Live, on my friends on Facebook, and soon to be pushed up on YouTube. <laughs> you see my face more than you probably want to. We are in Revelation chapter 1. Lord willing, we'll be finishing that up this morning. So if you would turn to Revelation, get your Bibles out. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 9 through 20. 9 through 20. So let's lift this up in prayer. Lord, we just pray for this day. We pray for your word as it goes forth. Lord, we know from your word that your word does not return void. And I pray all of those who's hearing it, wherever they are, Lord, I pray that this word would touch hearts, would change lives. And Lord, the people would come to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, just take a hold of this word today. Use it for your grace, for your mercy, for your glory, Lord. Use it, Lord. We ask it and pray it in your name. Amen. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 1 and read verse 9. I, John both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And so let's stop right there at the first part of verse 9. So John says, I'm your brother, I'm your companion. And when you look at that in context, the apostle Paul is gone. Paul had been beheaded at this point by the emperor Nero. And just before his death, he wrote... To his spiritual son, Timothy, he said, For I'm ready, already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-7. through seven. Peter was gone. And we know from outside sources that Peter was crucified upside down. In fact, he asked to be crucified upside down, saying, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same fashion as my Lord. And we know his last words, or at least his last words that we have recorded in text, is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. The other apostles had by this time spread out all around the globe, which is what the Lord commanded them to do in the first place. And all except John were martyred for their faith. So at this point, many scholars believe John is the only one left. And the emperor Domitian had tried to put him to death, as legend has it. He had put John, or had put John, in a pot of boiling oil, and it didn't kill him. It only caused John to preach the word of God even more. And so the emperor, furious and frustrated, has John exiled to an island called Patmos. And it's here that John gives us this amazing greeting. He says, I am your brother and your companion. And being the only surviving apostle, you have to, you have to think 
I mean, John's the last one. He's the last one to have seen Jesus, to have heard Jesus, to have been able to hug Jesus, to put his hands on Jesus. He's the last one. And I'm sure that everyone revered John. John's the elder statesman here. He's the last one. But John never saw himself that way. John humbly says, I am your brother. We're equals. We're equals. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus. We're all one. We're unified. And then he says we are companions. We're companions on this journey. We're all followers of Jesus Christ, and we're all in this together. And what an amazing statement that is. That word companion in the Greek means that we're joint partners. We're doing this as joint partners. And John is saying we're joint partners in this journey, just as we are joint heirs in the kingdom of heaven. We're pilgrims. We're pilgrims just traveling through this world on our way home. Pilgrims on our way home to heaven. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. And so we're just passing through. And John reminds us that we're not on this journey alone. We're not traveling alone. We have each other as companions along the way. And more importantly, we have Jesus that walks this walk with us. As he's told us, he will never leave us or forsake us. And John says, I am companions with you both in this journey and in tribulation. Now, John's not referring to the great tribulation here. He's referring to the tribulation that we have in this world because that word means affliction or persecution. And John certainly is no stranger to persecution and affliction. Listen, we're going through a trial right now, aren't we, as a church? We're going through a trial. The whole world is going through this trial. And undoubtedly, when this trial ends, the world that we live in will be different. It's not going to be the same. And so none of this should surprise us, should it? Because we were never promised an easy journey through this life. The Bible tells us that through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Peter wrote, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Did you catch that? We're called to this purpose, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered for us. Acts chapter 9 verse 16 says, Jesus says this about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And the point of all this is that just because we're followers of Jesus Christ, it does not mean that we are exempt from the trouble of this world. It doesn't mean that we're free of tribulation. It doesn't mean that we're free from trials. You know that old saying, that one that really encourages everybody and lifts everybody up, is either we're in the midst of a trial, we're coming through a trial, or we're entering into a trial. And, and if that doesn't get you all pumped up this morning, I don't know what will. But listen, we will have tribulations in this life, and it was made crystal clear to us by the fact that the apostles were all martyred for their faith. They didn't get a free pass. All of them were martyred for their faith except John, although not for lack of trying. And so we're going to face trials. We're going to face tribulations. And 
we're going to face a trial just like the one we're in, and there's many more of these to come. Believe me, as we go through the book of tribulation, uh, the book of Revelation, rather, which is a book highlighting the tribulation, um, you're going to see that firsthand. But listen, we're going to face these trials, and so as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's time for us to take our light from out from underneath that basket and let it shine even more brightly in this time of tribulation. Listen, anyone who knows me very well knows that I am a staunch defender of the Constitution and of the Bill of Rights. Many men and women have fought and died and bled to defend our freedoms. So I am not, I am not a fan of masks. I am not a fan of social distancing. I am not a fan of being herded like sheep in stores. And I'm especially not a fan of this shelter in place. Now, before you misunderstand what I said, all I said was I'm not a fan. I'm not a, a dissident, but I'm not a fan. Um, but that in no way suggests that I don't take this virus seriously because I do. But I also take global governance and I take totalitarianism very seriously as well. And so we're called, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to obey the authority placed over us. Unless, unless, and we've, you've always heard this, unless it goes against the word of God. And, you know, in some cases, maybe they're pushing the envelope just a little too far right now, but I digress. But when I'm sitting there thinking about all the things that we're mandated to do right now and all these things, and, and some of them are a good measure, some of them are helpful, some of them will help keep us healthy and help keep others healthy, so it's a good thing. But when I stop and compare what we're going through today to what our brothers and sisters in Christ went through all through the ages, it changes your perspective. You know, I think they'd look at us and say, you're complaining about wearing a mask? They couldn't go anywhere under Roman-controlled territory without being undercover, without covering themselves or having documents because they could be stopped at any time, questioned, and if it was determined that they were a Christian, they would be covered in tar and made a street lamp. They would light them on fire to light the streets of the city. Peter and Paul had both spent time in jail. Paul actually spent a couple years under house arrest. So as Christians, throughout the ages, we are not strangers to tribulation. We are not strangers to persecution. And we're certainly not strangers to government restraint. But here's the good news. Jesus said, in me you will have peace. Peace in Jesus. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16, So we're going to suffer tribulations. We're going to suffer trials. We're going to go through all the things that has been a part of this Christian walk for centuries. Even this trial we're going through right now. But trials, listen, trials are designed for a very specific purpose. They are designed to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So that by our actions, and especially by our reactions, we bring him glory. So we shouldn't let this, even COVID-19, get us down because this is not our home. Remember, we are just pilgrims passing through here. This is not our home. And Jesus has overcome this world so that when we finish this journey, with all its ups and downs, we're going to enter heaven. And Jesus will be standing there welcoming us and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. 
What a glorious day that'll be for us. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I long to be able to say at the end of my journey here, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. John says he's also a companion in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus. And John tells us that we are secure when he says that. We're secure in our eternal destination. We don't have to worry. We are secure. When we come to know Christ, we don't... Eternity is not something that we look forward to in the future. Eternity is something that we have as soon as we become believers in Jesus Christ. We have an eternal destination that's secure through him. And second, in the patience of Jesus, meaning that we must endure. We must endure, and that's what that word patience means, endure through these trials in life until the end. So let's read the second half of verse 9. We haven't even got through verse 9 yet. John was on the island of called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the island of Patmos where John is, it's not a vacation spot. It's not a brochure that you'd have hanging in your desk drawer. It's not a place that you're longing to go to once this shelter-in-place order is lifted. It was a volcanic, desolate, rocky place in the Aegean Sea. It was just a wasteland. And it wasn't meant to be a a pleasant place. It was used for punishment. It was meant to be like that. It was meant to silence John because John was just aggravating the emperor by preaching the gospel message everywhere he went. And there's more, something more sinister to this, something more sinister behind his exile, and that was to silence the word of God. But notice that or why John is on the island of Patmos. First, he says it's for the word of God. And he's exiled there for preaching the word of God for sure. That's part of the reason he's there. But he's also there because God is going to give him a prophetic word. And I want you to see that John is isolated here. He's isolated from the rest of the world. And it's in that position where the Lord has him that the Lord reveals his word to him. And we see that in other places in Scripture. We see that with other men of God who are alone, isolated, and God speaks to them. Men like Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Daniel, just to name a few. We know from the word of God that God's voice is not in the earthquake. It's not in the fire. It's not in the rushing wind. It is a still, small voice. And so in order to hear God's still small voice, your life can't be filled with chaos and confusion. It's difficult to hear that still small voice when there's nothing but confusion around you. So you need to get away from all of that. You need to get alone with God just like John was. Because listen, life can and does sometimes get a little rocky, doesn't it? Life is certainly a little rocky right now. It's filled with uncertainty. We're living in uncertain times. And these times that we're living in, especially now, has caused a lot of frustration and a lot of anxiousness. Life can feel like it's desolate sometimes, like we're separated, like we're cut off from the rest of the world. But sometimes that's just where God wants us. That's the perfect place for us to be. Situations like this, like we're in right now, brings us to a place where there's nowhere else to turn. 
John, in his isolation, received the revelation from the Lord. And perhaps in this time of isolation that many of you are in, God wants to reveal something special to you. Sometimes we need these rocky times in our lives to help us regain focus, to help us focus on the Lord, to help us put our faith and hope and trust back in him. And sometimes we need these times of isolation so that we can hear that still small voice. Amen? And John says he's there on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was there because he witnessed. He was a witness for Christ. And we live in a day, especially this time we're in right now, where we have an unprecedented opportunity to share our witness, to share the gospel, to share Jesus Christ with the entire world. You know, one of the positives of this virus is that it has driven pastors and teachers all over the country, all around the world, it has driven them onto the, onto the social media pages. And so now people can watch and listen and hear the gospel virtually all day long. What the enemy thought would silence the church has actually backfired and caused the gospel message to spread even further. What an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. So John boldly, under the threat of death, in, under the threat of imprisonment, under the threat of being boiled in a pot of oil, continued to preach the gospel message. After the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus had ascended, and we're, we're talking about the book of Acts now, and so the disciples were out doing what the disciples always did. They preached the name of Jesus Christ. And so they were arrested for that, and they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had them beaten, and then... They brought them before the court, and this is what happened. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. They had just been beaten, they had just been arrested, but they leave rejoicing. Because they counted it worthy to suffer for his name. And so here's the cool part. And daily... In the temple and in every house, they did not cease preaching the name of Jesus Christ. They were commanded, right? There was a, an, auth, an order in place. You will not preach the name of Jesus. And what did they do? They preached the name of Jesus. They went daily in every house, in every temple. They boldly preached Jesus as the Messiah. Listen, no order that any government official could ever pass will stop the message of the gospel from going forward. Amen? And it hasn't stopped it. You may close down the churches, you may issue an order that we can't meet, but the message of the gospel is going to go forth somehow, some way. It always has, and it always will. And so that's, that is a reminder to all of us to be bold, to boldly preach the gospel, to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in every house, in every store, in every place of work, and every street corner. Amen? Look at verse 10 and 11 of Revelation chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. 
on the Lord's day, meaning the day belonging to the Lord. It's the Lord's day. Now, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened on what day? Sunday. The church had been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that day, on the Lord's day. That was the day that they chose to worship the Lord. That was the day that they chose to have their church service. The Bible describes that as the first day of the week. Now, in the Hebrew or on the Hebrew calendar, the days of the week are not given names like they are in our calendar. They're not listed as Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They're listed as the first day, the second day, etc. The only day that gets a name is Shabbat. And Shabbat is Friday night at sundown to Saturday at sundown. So the day of the week, the first day of the week is Sunday on the Jewish calendar. Even today in Israel, the work week is from Sunday to Thursday. Friday and Saturday is considered their weekend. Now, some believe this refers to the Lord's day, meaning the day of the Lord's return, that John was transported somehow, if you will, to heaven where he's given a glimpse of the day that Jesus is returned. I don't believe that's what this phrase represents. Because what happens, what transpires in chapters 2 and 3 refers to the church age, the age which we, by the way, are living in right now. We're living in the church age. So from chapter 4 on, John is in heaven. John is in heaven, Jesus, and he's getting a glimpse, as Jesus calls him up to heaven, of what's to come. Right now, as, we're, as John's talking to us right now, as he's recording what he's seeing and what he's hearing, he's on earth. He's there on a Sunday morning worshiping the Lord when he hears a voice like a trumpet, meaning it was loud, it was reverberating. And what he hears is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And the Alpha and the Omega is a clear reference to the fact that God is speaking to him. He's the first and the last, the beginning, the end, the author and finisher of our faith, in him all things exist, and without him nothing exists. John 1.3, rather. And so he hears these instructions. What you see, write in a book and send it to seven churches, which, Lord willing, we're going to begin looking at next week. So John's told to write what he sees, what he's about to see, to in, into a, and put it in a letter and address it to each of these seven churches that we're going to look at. Look at verse 12. Then, it turned to, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So John turns now, and he turns toward the voice, and the first thing he sees is these seven golden lampstands, which tells me that they must be pretty large lampstands to catch his eye so quickly. Now, Jesus takes the mystery out of it for us as to what these seven lampstands represent. Jesus tells us later on that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches that he just told John to write a letter to. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, God describes the golden lampstand that would stand in the holy place to Moses. He says it's to be made of or to be hammered in from a single piece of pure gold with one stem in the center and three branches that come off of that one stem, making it a seven-stemmed lampstand, or most commonly called a menorah, which, by the way, that word menorah means a lamp 
or to shine. Now we know that these seven lampstands represent seven churches, but they are not menorahs. These are seven single branches of a lampstand, of a menorah, if you will. Some commentators, some Bibles might even call them candlesticks. Here's the connection, and I believe there's a connection between this seven-branched, these seven candlesticks and the seven-branched menorah in the holy place. The lampstand or menorah in the holy place was just outside the Holy of Holies. It was a holy place. And the church today is to be a holy place consisting of holy people. Peter wrote, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15-16. through 16. The lampstand in the holy place was made of pure gold, just as these lampstands in Revelation are made of pure gold. God, gold represents the glory of God. And, and that's a sign to the church that we are to give glory to God in all that we say and all that we do. The menorah in the holy place had one main stem and three branches on each side that branched off that main stem. Jesus is the branch, the main branch, if you will, of the church. And we are all the vines or branches that come off of him. We're connected to him. Without him, we can do nothing. The menorah in the holy place was always tended to by Aaron the priest and his sons, assuring that that light never went out. And it's the responsibility of the pastors and the body of the church to assure that the light of the church never goes out, that it's never put under a basket, but it's set on top of the hill for everyone to see. That menorah, that light in that menorah was burning day and night, 24-7, 365 days a year. And that lampstand or menorah was a symbol. As it sat in that holy place, it was a symbol of the light of Jesus to come. And it pointed the, the world to the light of Jesus. Jesus called us, his church, the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It's not our light, right? It's not our light. It's his light that shines through us 24-7, 365 days a week. But the most important lesson to take away from this is that both the lampstand in the holy place and the, and the candlesticks in the church were created to be a beacon of light pointing this world to Jesus Christ. And notice, we're not alone in this. John sees our Lord, Christ Jesus, standing in the midst of these lampstands representing the church. Just as, the God, just as God's presence was in the temple, Jesus' presence is among his churches. And I wonder how Jesus feels as he walks through his churches today, as he sees the state of the church today. And I wonder if it breaks his heart as he walks through the churches and, and witnesses the division and the separation and the turning away from his word. And so we're going to discover as we enter into the, the, seven, the study of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus addresses these issues with the churches. Look at verse 13 through 15. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as is refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
So John's focus now turns from the seven golden lampstands to the one whom walks among the seven golden lampstands. And he sees the Lord. And he gives us a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's clothed in a robe down to his feet with a golden sash across his chest. And that could be a picture of a king. It could be a picture of a high priest. In Leviticus chapter 8 verse 7 we see Aaron, the high priest, clothed in a robe with a sash. And what John saw, I believe, was a picture of, or Jesus as, our king and as our high priest as he holds both of those offices. His sash was girded around his chest. I want you to notice that. And that's a huge difference from the last time John had seen Jesus with his towel girded around his waist to wash the disciples' feet. John no longer sees the servant he saw in the upper room that night. He sees a king and a priest standing before him. (coughs) And Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest in heaven right now, interceding for each one of us just as the high priest in the temple would intercede for the people. The author of Hebrews writes, (coughs) Excuse me. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. We have a high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what we go through. So he can sympathize with us, empathize with us. He is our king. He is our high priest and he's our king. And now his very words are written on his robe. In Revelation 19.16 it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. John sees Jesus as having white hair, hair like wool. And that's the same picture that Daniel saw In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. The white hair, as God is called the Ancient of Days, is a it speaks of eternity. The Ancient of Days, it speaks of eternity. God always was, always is, and always will be our everlasting God. His eyes were like flame of fire. His eyes, that that fire, that burning fire is able to pierce right through you, to see right through you. Nothing can escape the gaze of our Lord. His feet like bronze. Bronze, of course, in in the Bible represents judgment. And so it represents the judgment to come as his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. His voice like many waters. Again, the prophet Ezekiel also heard the voice of the Lord and he wrote, And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So the voice of God is powerful and majestic. And John got to hear it. Ezekiel got to hear it. Moses got to hear it. Look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You ever see the... Yesterday was a beautiful day. 
the sun was shining, was bright. If you if you were out fortunate enough to be out in it, and and that sun hit you, you get a, can't you see a little? My hair probably doesn't shine as much today. He's got a little tan, but uh, it was beautiful. And, and as as hot and bright as that sun can get, it's nothing compared to what John witnessed that day, as Jesus shone before him in all his glory. In his hands were seven stars. And in verse 20, again, Jesus removes the mystery as to what those seven stars are. They represent seven angels or seven messengers of the church, of those seven churches. So John sees a sharp, two-sided sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And in his glory, he shines like the sun. So Jesus stands before John in all of his Shekinah glory. And the sword coming out of his mouth is a sword of judgment. I want you to listen to this verse that we find, we're going to come to when we get to chapter 2 of Revelation. It says, repent. Jesus is saying this to the church. Repent, or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Again, in Revelation 19, we read, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God, Revelation 19.15. So in the book of Revelation, this sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus represents judgment. And we also know from the letter of Hebrews that the sword represents the word of God. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. So make no mistake, this sword that we see, that John sees, is a sword used to exact judgment. But that judgment will also come, or will come rather, because people who have heard the word of God, yet still reject the Son of God. You see, the, the word of God has the power to cut through the excuses has the power to cut through the justification that we make for our sin. The Word of God can, can lay our sin condition bare before us, revealing our sinful heart to us. The Word of God can do heart surgery on us, cutting away that sin that has kept us separated from Christ for so long. The Word of God can cause us to want to be set free and forgiven of our sin. The Word of God is there to lead us to a place where we will judge ourselves so that we won't have to be judged. And by that I mean admit that you're a sinner. Admit, judge yourself, confess your sin, and turn to Jesus, and you will, the Bible tells us, be saved. And that's as simple as ABC, and we're going to look at that at the end of this message. And if we judge ourselves, if we confess our sin, if we turn to him, we will not stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. Will not. Because Jesus paid the debt for our sin with his death on the cross. He took the judgment of God upon himself. And for all who hear the word of God and are saved, we don't stand in judgment before the Lord. Jesus took that judgment. He took the wrath for us. The Bible tells us so that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you can either face the sword judgment 
or you can hear the word of God, which is a sharp two-edged sword, and be saved from the judgment. So let that word that comes from the mouth of Jesus, his word, change your life, and then you will be saved from the sword of judgment. Amen? Look at verse 17 and 18. And where I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. When John saw this, he saw Jesus like he had never seen Jesus before. Now remember, John had seen Jesus in all his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. John had seen the risen Christ, but there's something different that John sees on this day. Something John has never seen before. He's seen Jesus like he's never seen him before. Because Jesus isn't standing before him as the one who washed the disciples' feet. He's not standing before John as the one who went before the Pharisees like a lamb to slaughter, not uttering a word. Jesus is standing before John as a conquering king, ready to return to this earth to rule and reign. So in fear, he falls on his face at the feet of Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. He puts his right hand on his disciple, and he touches John to comfort him. Yes, absolutely. And he tells him, do not be afraid. Listen, as believers in Christ, let those words reverberate through you. Do not be afraid. God said this to the nation Israel, because this is why I believe Jesus putting his right hand on John is significant. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Jesus sees that John's fearful. And so he puts his righteous right hand on him, which is a symbol, a sign of strength and control. And Jesus reassures him. He comforts him and reassures him and says, he's saying to him, in effect, by putting his right hand on him, I am in control, John. I'm in control. I am sovereign. I have power over all things. And so for all who are in Christ, all believers in Jesus Christ, all those believers out there who are listening to my voice right now, there is nothing to fear if you are in Christ. And Jesus then goes ahead and tells John, if it, that's not enough, why he shouldn't be afraid. He says, for I am the first and the last, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then he says, I hold the keys to death. Jesus is eternal. Again, I don't think we can ever say this too many times. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be. He is the resurrection and the life, and all who believe in him, though they may die, will live again. That is a, a promise that we have in the scriptures. In Jesus, death has lost its sting. He holds the key to life and death, meaning that Jesus has the power and authority over death, and he has the power and authority to give eternal life to all who believe in him. He has that authority. He has that power. This is what Jesus said in, in John's Gospel, chapter, 
10, verses 17 through 18. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority over life and death. So those who are in him and have submitted their lives to him need never be afraid of anything. Because Jesus is is in control. rather. He is sovereign over all, even over this virus. He is sovereign. And in him we have strength. As we're told that in Jesus we could do anything, right? We could do anything. That means you could leave here, go to the airport, and fly a plane, right? Is that what that means? We could do anything, it says. I take that promise to mean that we can endure anything. We can overcome anything. And we can have victory over everything. Let me say that again. We can endure anything. We can overcome anything. And we can have victory over everything that this world brings against us. The days we live in right now have caused many to become fearful. I see it all around. And understandably so. This virus, this invisible enemy can have devastating effects on anyone who who contracts it. It's taken the lives of both young and old, of strong and the compromised alike. It, It seems to be no respecter of persons. And so there seems to be no guarantee that you will or won't contract this virus. In fact, there's no real guarantees in this life, period, is there? There's no guarantees that you won't walk out this door this morning and get hit with a bolt of lightning. There's just no guarantee. Things in our lives have always been subject to change, haven't they? The only real guarantee is eternal life. And the only way to obtain that is by submitting your life now, your earthly life, to Jesus Christ. And when you submit your life to Jesus, it means that no one or nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, once the Lord has you in his hand, nothing can take you from his hand. You know, speaking to my brother the other day, he asked me a question about the second coming and the rapture, which shocked me to my core to begin with. I love my brother dearly, and the fact that he's asking questions about the Bible just blows me away. Thank you, Lord. But he he made the comment that if you missed the rapture, that the second coming would be a second chance of sorts. Because I had explained to him that there will be tribulation saints. There will be those who are saved during the tribulation. I pray to God that he doesn't find out the hard way, but he's a disbro and we learn everything the hard way. And he's not alone in that thinking. I mean, it's actually a pretty good question, right? I mean, we do get a second chance at this. It's called the tribulation, and we could become a tribulation saint. Listen, that's not the way you want to do this, but I realize that some are going to have to learn the hard way, and we pray for you. But he's not alone. Many people today believe they have, a dis- they have time to make the decision, right? You have time. You have time. I mean, my brother, God bless him, he's only a year or so younger than me, and he's already looking forward to the second coming of Christ. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this sermon alive today, but he's already looking out who knows how much further out. What bothers me with that way of thinking is that no one is guaranteed, not one person listening to this message this morning is guaranteed our next breath. 
But we don't like to think like that, do we? People tend to think that they have plenty of time left. People, when, when, when a death occurs around them or near them, they tend to think, Phew, it wasn't me. Death only happens to, to the other guy. What makes people so fearful is that no one knows for certain. There's no guarantee, and that's why people don't like to think about it. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that you won't die today. There's no guarantee that this virus, you'll contract this virus and lose your life. There's just no guarantee. There's no certainty. No one can say with any certainty that I won't get this or that I won't succumb to something else. You can't. And listen, there is no guarantees. There is no certainty in this life. The only hope, the only guarantee, the only certainty that any of us can have that any of us have of a life after the grave is in Jesus Christ. That's the only guarantee. That's the only certainty. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 11, chapter 11, verse 25. In Jesus we have nothing, nothing. And I wish my words could come out in bold letters. Nothing to fear. He is in control. He is sovereign, and he has overcome this world. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So John, after he gathers himself up off the ground, Jesus tells him, get a pen, get some papyrus paper, and start writing. He wants you to write the things which you've seen, write the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. What pastors love the most about the book of Revelation, next to the fact that you're blessed by reading it, by hearing it, and by applying it, is the fact that it comes with its own divine outline. Write the things which you have seen. Now, John is to write the vision of Jesus. And, and remember, the book of Revelation isn't as much of a book of revealing the apocalypse, revealing the last days. It's a book revealing Jesus Christ to the world. This vision of our king and priest, of Jesus no longer being the suffering servant, of Jesus coming back to this earth as king to rule and reign, is the vision that, John, that he wants John to record that he's coming back again with all power and all authority in heaven. And then he says, write these things which are. And what he's talking about is that from this chapter all the way to chapter 3 is what we call the church age. That's the things that are. That's the things that John's writing about at that point. Chapter 4 begins with the words, and after these things... And what Jesus is referring to, if John's writing about the church age now, then after these things means after the church age. So from chapter 4 on, the church is no longer mentioned. In fact, I'm going to give you just a little teaser relating to the rapture. In verse 1 of chapter 4, John is told, come up here, come up here, and I'll show you the things which must take place after this. Come up where? Heaven. Come up to heaven, and I'll show you what's going to take place after the age of the church. So you're going to have to wait till we get to chapter 4 to dig a little deeper into what happens to the church after the age of the church has come to an end. So you're just going to have to keep listening. Write these things that will take place after this. 
Write the things that will take place after the church age. The things that Jesus is going to describe to John are the things that are going to take place during the tribulation. A time, by the way, that will be so horrific. Jesus said, if I did not shorten the days, no flesh would survive. It is not a time when you want to come to know Jesus. You want to come to know Jesus now, before that ever happens. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, and this saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands are the seven stars and the seven and the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, if you remember a little earlier on in chapter one, it says that this book was sent and signified by his angel to his servant John. It was signified or signified. A good portion of this book of Revelation is conveyed to us in signs. The seven lampstands, and we don't have to guess at this, we don't have to interpret this, Jesus tells us what they are. They're the seven churches that he mentioned, that we mentioned earlier on. And these seven stars or seven angels are associated with those seven churches. Now, angels, that word angel means messenger. Angels are messengers of God. And there's some debate as to whether these messengers are angelic messengers or human messengers. Now, some believe, as I do, that churches have angels in them all the time. Some believe that there's guardian angels for every church. I don't know about that, but I, I believe that there may be an angel standing right be, behind me with, a, with his sword drawn. I believe angels are in the church, protecting the church, standing outside the door of the church, the church that's filled with believers. And so it wouldn't surprise me if my eyes were open to that fact and I turned around and saw an angel standing behind me. But in context, I believe these angels or messengers are the pastors of the churches, the pastors and elders, the leaders of these churches. You know, when God gave this message to Jesus, he related to John by his angel. In Scripture, we see God giving instructions to man through his angels, through his messengers. So why would he tell John to write messages to the angels of God if God had a message for them, if God wanted to give them a message for us, he would have just conveyed it to them. John is told to write to the leaders of the churches, and that message extends to all the leaders of the churches throughout the ages, even to this day. The leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders, are responsible for the spiritual direction and condition of the church. And so, Lord willing, next week we're going to look and begin to study in and look at the spiritual condition and direction of these churches that Jesus tells John to write these letters to. But before we get there, as we always do, or try to do, what's the application? What is the application here? What can we walk away from this message today with? First and foremost, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. At the beginning of this letter, we're told that it is a blessing. There's a blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, and but more importantly, to those who apply it to their life. And this is one of those applications. Jesus tells us right out, makes it very clear, do not be afraid. And there's a blessing that comes from not being fearful. Listen, I believe the Holy Spirit's doing an amazing work here. 
He's revealing things to all of us, to all believers. He's revealing some things in us that may be hindering our walk or hindering our witness. And listen, fear does both of those things. Fear hinders our witness and hinders our walk. The Word of God tells us, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Sound mind. Funny story. I was with my grandkids one day. had them at hockey practice. And Oliver, as we're sitting there eating lunch after hockey practice, Oliver's licking the table. It was a phase. He was going through a phase. So Tatum remarks, that kid's going to get the coronavirus. <laughs> now, even in their youth, one was fearful of his brother getting the virus, and the other one, well, he was licking tables. So obviously he didn't care one way or the other. And I'm not saying that we should be out licking tables, okay? I'm not saying that. We should be taking precautions. We should be washing our hands. We should be not touching our faces. We should be doing all those things. But what we should not be doing is living in fear. Not as believers in Jesus Christ we shouldn't be. We belong to God. We're his. And we will not leave this earth, and I said this last week, one second before the Lord calls us home. And if it's our time to be called home, then listen, there is no amount of life-saving measures that will prevent that from happening. Be cautious, yes, don't, I don't recommend licking tables, be cautious, but always remember that you are not your own, you're not your own, you belong to Jesus Christ, he bought and paid for you, he redeemed you with his blood, your family does not belong to you, for the same reasons, we all belong to the Lord. And we are called to serve him here on this Lord on this earth. We are called to serve him at his pleasure and for his glory. And when he determines that it is our time to return home, he will call us home. It's as simple as that. We have no control over that. So for us to live is Christ, and that means that while we're on this earth, while we're here, we are to live boldly, for Jesus Christ. We are to live our lives for him. And to die is gain, Paul said. Meaning that our one day our faith will finally become sight. So as Jesus places his righteous right hand on each of you, take comfort in the knowledge that you are his. Take comfort in the fact that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he holds the key to death. He has the authority over eternal life. And not one of us, not one hair on our head, even me, even Paul, will be harmed unless it's his will, and not one of us will be called home unless it's our time. Amen? Amen. And the second thing I want you to take away from this, has God gotten your attention yet? Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, use this time to draw near to the Lord. All the excuses that we've had in the past, I'm too busy, I'm working too many hours, all of that's been stripped away now. You've been given a divine opportunity here. A divine opportunity to draw closer to the Lord than you've ever been before. 
please, please, I beg of you as followers of Jesus Christ, please do not let this opportunity slip from your hands. Enjoy this time that you get to spend with the Lord. Take full advantage of it by spending extra time with him. Because listen, once this life goes back to normal, and depending upon what governor you listen to, it could be next week, it could be next year, it could be 10 years from now. Excuse me. That passion comes out once in a while. Once life goes back to normal and the cares of the world come flooding back in, you're going to miss this time that you've been able to spend with the Lord. Trust me. Trust me. And listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're struggling with the decision to place your faith in Him. Maybe you don't even think all of this is real. Or you've known Him in the past but have drifted away from Him. God sees you. God knows your struggles. And just like the parable of the prodigal son, God has been waiting patiently, lovingly, for you to come back to him. He's using this time out, if you will, that the whole world is in, to make himself real to you. He's getting your attention. Listen, you know how special you are to God? He shut down the entire world just to talk to you, just to get your attention. That's how special you are to him. He's using this situation to cause you to look up, to look to him, to put your faith and hope and trust in him. That feeling of hopelessness, of uncertainty that you're experiencing, there's only one cure for that. And that's putting your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you want that, if you want the peace of Jesus in your life, if you want a companion on this journey of life for the rest of your life, one who will talk with you, one who will walk with you, one who will comfort you, teach you, lead you, guide you, and give you strength and peace, if that's what you want, if that's what you're longing for, you can have that in your life, and you could have that in your life right now today. It is as easy as A, B, C. And, and listen, for my brothers and sisters who already know this, who get it, you're going to hear this every week. You're going to hear this every time that I get to come before people on Facebook Live or YouTube or whatever it is, because this is the most important part of this message, the gospel. That's what we're all here for. Jesus could have taken us all out of this world. We wouldn't have to be going through any of this. We could be sitting in heaven eating Philadelphia cream cheese and floating around on a cloud all day. But he left us here. He left us here to be a witness for him. This is what it's all about. So A, B, C, A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God because that's what the scripture tells us. As it is written, there is none righteous, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. You can't escape that. David said, it was in sin my mother conceived me. I was born in sin. We've all come into this world with a sinful nature. And the only way for that sinful nature to be corrected is through Jesus Christ. So then believe. That's the B of this. Believe with all your heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that God raised him from the dead and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Believe that with all your heart. Romans 10, verses 10 to 11 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
you can trust with all certainty in what the Word of God says. You can have the guarantee that what Jesus says is true. You will never be put to shame if you make the decision to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And then finally, C, call upon the name of the Lord. Call out to Jesus. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Confess that you need him. That you want him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior. That you want to submit your life to him. That you're tired of doing this on your own. You can't do this on your own any longer. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And listen, as I say every week, there are no magic words here. There's no special prayer, although I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a prayer for you here in a, in a few seconds. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. You know, one of the first things I learned when I became a Christian is that you can miss heaven, the kingdom of heaven, by just 18 inches. The distance between your head and your heart. You can know Jesus, you can know of Jesus, you can have heard of Jesus all your life and know him here, but not have him here, and you're not saved. You're not saved. If you believe in all your heart that Jesus died for your sins, and that he's risen from the grave, and that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and you want to be part of the group that's coming back with him, the saints that are coming back with him, listen, if that's what you truly desire in your heart, that's what you want more than anything else, then if we were put the, to put these words into a prayer, that prayer would look something like this. So if you need that, if you need that prayer, and listen, this what we're going to pray in a few seconds here, it's not magic words. This is not a magic pill. You need to believe this with all your heart. Because to just say this in your, just utter it with your mouth and just believe it in your head does nothing. You need to believe this with all your heart as you say this. So if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I realize I am a sinner. And I can never reach heaven by anything that I did on my own, by my own good works. Right now, Lord, right now, I place my faith in Christ Jesus as God's Son, as God's Son who was raised from the dead to give me eternal life. Please forgive me of my sins, Lord, and please help me to live for you from this day forward. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And thank you, Lord, for accepting me into the kingdom of heaven, for giving me eternal life. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I pray right now for all those who have prayed that prayer. I pray, Lord, that you would just do a mighty and wondrous work in them and through them. And Lord, I pray that you do a mighty and wondrous work through us as the body of Christ. Let us, Lord, be mindful of all that we say and do, that it brings glory and honor to you. And Lord, let us be filled with passion to spread your gospel message far and wide. Go before us now, your children, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. God bless you guys.